for this episode of Metaphors Be With You, we'll be talking about the best Star Wars movie. I said what I said. Hi, I'm Rob Hired of Chipperish Media, and this is a podcast about symbolism and allegory in Star Wars, the movies, the TV shows, the books, and everything else, except during season three, when instead I'm going to be going through each movie to find the metaphors hidden in each one. I've mentioned before that I adore this movie, but I'm saying it again. The Last Jedi is a gosh darn masterpiece, and if you don't like it, I feel bad for you. That said, let's break it down. At a story level, I read this as a movie about advancing the arcs of our central heroes. The three of them are separated, and each is given two other characters to bounce off and try to learn from. Rey deals with the competing influences of Luke and Kylo Ren, Finn has Rose and DJ as the angel and devil on his shoulders, and Poe learns about leadership from the different examples of Holdo and Leia. But along with these narrative and character development goals, The Last Jedi is a film about subverting expectations. Any movie with episode 8 in its title is working with a fair bit of collected franchise detritus, and I'm a big fan of how this movie chooses to deal with that. If The Force Awakens leaned on your nostalgia to reassure you about this new direction for the Star Wars universe, The Last Jedi practically does the opposite, using your genre savviness against you to illuminate the tropes of the franchise, and adventure movies in general, and maybe get you to think about why you thought what you thought. I'm going to take a moment to once again plug Pop Culture Detective Agency, which is a great video on how The Last Jedi subverts our expectations about male heroes. There's a link in the show notes. But let's review some of the assumptions that the average theatergoer brings with them that The Last Jedi subverts in some way. The Jedi Order was a great heroic institution. The great heroes of the past draw was just one rousing speech away from coming out of retirement. The cocky young hero who won't listen to authority figures is right to do so and gets results. A convoluted gopher-broke plan will save the day in the nick of time. Sacrificing your life is the pinnacle of heroism. And most fundamentally of all, men are right. All of these ideas are things that the movie lets you believe for a while, then yanks out from under you to point out that the only reason you believe them was that they are standard operating procedure for adventure stories. And I can sort of see why some people hated the movie if they felt like it was tricking them, or if they were too invested in some of those tropes being true. Cough, men are always right, cough. Alright, let's get into the weeds. In terms of setting, this is the only Star Wars movie that starts immediately after the last one ends, so the galaxy should feel about the same as it did in The Force Awakens. But there's at least one important difference. With the Republic capital destroyed, the First Order appears to have declared itself a ruling power now, and the opening crawl tells us that it's busily taking military control over various star systems. Snoke and some of the other high-ups are also now referring to the Resistance as Rebels, which is an obvious attempt to undo Leia's linguistic power move that I mentioned last episode. And the opening shot establishes for us how much trouble the Resistance is in. Like all Star Wars movies, we begin on one or more spaceships, but this time we start in an extremely wide shot, making the tiny Resistance fleet seem even tinier. Good thing they got Poe Dameron on their side. He'll certainly have a net positive effect on their chances. Poe's arc begins with him as the same cocky, charismatic hotshot he was last movie. We continue the pattern of starting the movie with him mouthing off to some First Order jerk, and I desperately hope Rise of Skywalker completes this hat trick. Specifically, Poe gives his name and rank in the Republic fleet, and Hux counters by calling him Rebel Scum. We're very much in a war of branding here, along with the regular kind of war with guns and stuff. It's a nice touch that Poe Dameron, natural-born resistance pilot, can understand BB-8's astromech language, and I think there's something to be said about what languages a Star Wars character understands in forming their role in the world. But that's a topic for the normal format of this show. Another fun detail of Poe's confrontation with the Dreadnought is that while it's generally Star Destroyer-shaped, it's got this funny downward protrusion on the bow that I read as an old man's beard, and its captain is one of the few First Order officers who look old enough to know what he's doing. The movie is telling us that the Dreadnought is serious business. So Poe does what action heroes do, and he puts it all on the line, and gives it 110%, and, I don't know, never lets them see him sweat or something. He achieves the goal, and we've been primed to think that this is good, so we're just as shocked as he is when Lay slaps him and tells me he's demoted. 
The lesson is interrupted by the First Order, who have managed both to track them through hyperspace and destroyed basically all the Resistance fighter fleet, meaning Poe is suddenly unemployed. His primary source of identity won't be available again this movie, so he's going to have to work on this whole leadership thing or whatever, if only to keep himself busy. I'm sounding pretty harsh on Poe here, so let me also point out that we take a moment for both Leia and Poe to independently realize what their least bad tactical option is after they've lost their fighters, which suggests that Poe does indeed have the seeds of Leia's greatness in him, but not so much of Leia that he gets to take over for her when she's incapacitated. There's a moment when Poe's expression and years of conditioning by other media suggest that maybe he's about to get a field promotion, but no. We're subverting expectations and doing what I suspect is the more realistic thing, of assuming that the commander of one of the other ships is probably the next ranking officer, precisely to deal with this eventuality. In the U.S., the president and vice president never fly on the same plane, which is why neither of them has ever, in the history of the country, been replaced by Oscar Isaac. Oh well. Anyway, Poe is still an action hero, man of action who will act. So he marches right up to Vice Admiral Holdo to tell her that fuel is low. And if you're listening carefully to the side chatter, she's already telling the crew to bring her the fuel data, so this is definitely not news. I'm going to sidebar for a moment to talk about fuel. I've heard people try to make the resistance is running out of gas into an air quotes plot hole because the subject of fuel had never come up in the previous movies. Not to mince words, but I find this argument insane. Because A, this is the first time that we've ever had our ragtag heroes flying a goddamn aircraft carrier as an escape vehicle, away from where we just saw them have to abandon a bunch of their supplies. And B, why would fuel not be a thing in the Star Wars galaxy? I'd be more surprised if we casually reveal that ships don't need any kind of fuel to run, since energy requirements have been a core assumption of basic all our technology since the Industrial Revolution. Along with the bombs falling onto the dreadnought in space, this strikes me as a disingenuous argument for people who don't want to admit what they actually don't like about the movie. Alright, back to Holdo and Poe. We've seen the beat of the cocky but supremely capable hero clashing with a superior officer many times, and Poe is a character we already know and like, where Holdo is at this point just a stern cipher. We're absolutely supposed to be on Poe's side through all their clashes, up to and including the flat-out mutiny that threatens the actual plan for the Resistance's survival. But why didn't Holdo share her plan with Poe, is the next complaint of the plot hole brigade. First of all, she wasn't obligated to in any way. Poe and Leia had a close friendship, that transcended some of the niceties of rank, but no military structure requires officers to justify themselves to people under their command. Second, when Poe did find out the plan, which depended on secrecy and stealth, he immediately blabbed it to Finn in a way DJ could overhear, exactly proving Holdo's implicit point, that Poe's arrogance was dangerous to everyone and she was right to withhold information from him. And let's take a moment to acknowledge that Poe Dameron is indirectly responsible for the deaths of something north of 90% of the Resistance over the course of this movie. We hear that there are 400 crew aboard the three remaining ships right after Leia is incapacitated, and the surviving 30 or so people can fit aboard the Millennium Falcon at the end. It's just a disaster, and the movie doesn't have time for Poe to dwell on it. But if you're interested in his internal reckoning with his mistakes here, I recommend Resistance Reborn, a novel by Rebecca Rowanhorse, which deals with the month or so of time right after The Last Jedi ends. Suppose Mutiny gets cut short by the one person he could never argue with, Leia Organa, fresh out of her hospital bed but still a crack shot. It's interesting to note that the blaster she uses to stun him is the same model that she used against the Stormtroopers at the beginning of Episode 4, which is both a nostalgic callback and a quiet statement that Poe is the enemy right now. And once Poe is nicely unconscious, we finally get to see the warm human side of Holdo, hugging and joking with Leia before turning herself into a vengeful thunderbolt of hyperspace justice against the First Order fleet. Moving on to Finn... His arc begins with him as the same traumatized character who really only cares about Ray, which he reminds us of in his first two lines, Ray! and Where's Ray? Once he's been caught up appropriately, he leaps at the first chance to grab the binary beacon that will bring Ray back home and tries to jump ship. Lest you, like Rose, think he's being cowardly here, remember that when he does wind up with a mission off the ship, he gives the beacon to Poe for safekeeping, 
Remember that he's planning to board the First Order flagship, and he certainly wouldn't want Rey to fly straight to where Snoke and Kylo Ren are. Oh. Look, Finn, life comes at you fast, and your heart was in the right place here. But it's in the wrong place when he makes his initial escape attempt. The movie tells us this by showing him packing in some darkened closet before he steps back out into the brightly lit hallways. Thankfully, Rose helps him. Rose knows what heroism is, having learned from her sister in both word and deed. Know right from wrong, and don't be afraid to do what's right. Rose is exactly the tutor that Finn needs at this point in his life. He has all the potential to be a hero, but it's all wrapped up in fear and trauma. And once we get past the whole stun him for attempted desertion thing, we see them working together beautifully to solve the hyperspace tracking problem. My friend and yours, Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media, likes to point out that giving a potential romantic couple a task they can work on together is a great way to show connection, and I fully agree. Standing on Finn's other shoulder, representing a relentless cynicism, is DJ. Side note, the Benicio del Toro character is never named in the movie, but the novelization and screenplay call him DJ as an abbreviation for his credo, Don't Join. DJ is a near-perfect avatar for the concept of defeatist cynicism. It's all a machine, he says, of the conflict between the Resistance and the First Order. Live free. Don't join. It's a very seductive message for Finn, who could use it to justify all the running from the First Order he could ever do. Making the message all the more enticing is that DJ seems to fall neatly into one of our tropes. He could be another Han Solo, a scoundrel with a heart of gold, and he seems to confirm this when he returns Rose's medallion to her. But this is just another expectation for Ryan Johnson to subvert. DJ has told us the truth about himself from the moment we met him, and he's not in this for any cause except living free for another day. On this point, I really appreciate that his particular expertise is Locke's. If personal freedom is his only goal, it makes perfect sense that he has trained himself to be able to bypass locks of all kinds. Prison is only prison if they can keep you there. Otherwise, it's just a free bed for the night. And let's talk a bit about Canto Bight, the place that DJ is at least temporarily plying his trade when we meet him. Rose gives us our introduction. It's a terrible place filled with the worst people in the galaxy, which is roughly equivalent to when Ben Kenobi says you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. Our expectations, then, from what Star Wars has taught us to this point, is a grungy dive filled with aliens, because sometimes aliens in this franchise represent marginalized communities. What we get instead is the 21st century American version of a criminal hellhole, rich people. And it's not a coincidence that most of the patrons aren't aliens at all, but humans. It's actually a great trick. During the initial camera sweep through the environment, there's always at least a couple of aliens visible, and the humans have such fancy costumes that it seems like we're looking at one of the patented Star Wars look-at-all-the-aliens scenes. But it's mostly just people in expensive-looking clothes. Also noteworthy about Canto Bight is the Fathier track, which is pretty obviously space horse racing. Now, I don't know much about horse racing, but a quick look at the Wikipedia article tells me that as it was practiced in England, which went on to shape the American conception of the sport, it was one of the first large-scale endeavors that involved all the classes. Nobility owned the horses and did some of the betting, while the middle classes filled the stands and also made bets, and of course the horses had to be cared for and stables cleaned out and all that by the lower classes. So it is entirely true to real-world history that there would be impoverished stable hands, quite possibly being whipped like a hundred meters from the wealthy people without a care in the world. And this is Canto Bight, a bunch of privileged shitheads gambling away the profits they made on the suffering of everyone who isn't them, some of whom suffer in plain sight next to them. They are the 1%, and the Republic has been decapitated, so there's literally no one left who's going to tell them no about anything. Which makes an interesting contrast, since they're on this planet that clearly does have some pretty firm rules. Finn and Rose are jailed for a fucking parking violation. Because this is the sort of thing that the wealthy and powerful use to keep the lower classes in line. I assume Cantabite also regulates sleeping in public and practices stop and frisk. Their police uniforms are a look that I would classify as formal stormtrooper, just to drive home the point about fascism. Something else that underscores the connection between the Cantabite police and the fascists of the First Order is a drive toward punishment, even above and beyond correcting the original infraction. When the police are chasing Finn and Rose with the herd of fathers, and their mount splits off from the rest, we hear one of the officers say, Let the herd go. Stick with the perps. 
Never mind the actual problem, that the quote stolen property can be recovered. The important thing is to catch and punish the perpetrators. Similarly, when Finn and Rose are captured by the First Order, Phasma says execution by blaster is insufficient. She wants to make it hurt. Which is why we bring out the wild laser axes that have two energy blades and presumably would make a little disc of neck if you cut off someone's head with them. Am I the only one who keeps thinking about that? My point is that, to the fascist mind, punishment is an end in itself, even when it's unrelated or even contradictory to undoing whatever the ostensible crime was. And we're going to use this lens to measure Finn's character growth, or lack of same. See, when the jig is up after the father chase and it looks like they'll be captured, Finn has his line about how it was worth it, wrecking the town and making them hurt. Rose takes a moment to remove the saddle from their mount, freeing the last father to go frolic with its friends, and then says it was worth it. She's less interested, even here, in destroying what she hates than she is in saving what she loves. So at the end of the movie, while Finn's arc has seen him through to becoming dedicated rebel scum, the kind that even makes inspirational speeches about the importance of the fight, he's still devoted more to the idea of keeping the First Order from winning, his words, than he is with staying alive to fight another day. It's a great measure of how he has gone from Finn, serial deserter, to THE Finn, resistance hero. But there's still a big problem with how he visualizes the conflict and how to address it. As an additional subversion of our expectations, Rose's big moral lesson to Finn is a pretty direct rebuke of what we've heard about the Jedi Code. Remember that Anakin's great fall was essentially a result of him trying really hard to save what he loved, but feeling pressured and undermined by everyone except Palpatine. Rose puts it out there into the Star Wars moral discourse that Anakin was right to want to do this, which leads inevitably to the idea that the institutions should probably support him doing it. Let's put a pin in that idea for now and come back when we talk about Luke. And time to talk about Luke. For two years after The Force Awakens, I wondered how they could follow up the scene at the end with Rey offering Luke his old saber, both of them clearly feeling all the feelings. It didn't seem like something you could time-lapse past, but what dialogue would you put there to progress the scene? I obsessed in the dialogue because I'm a writer and that's how I think. So naturally, Ryan Johnson, who was a writer and director, tricked me and exited the scene with an action I would never have predicted. Luke tossing the saber over his shoulder like an empty soda can. It's also worth noticing that the close-up shot of Luke taking the saber is dominated by his artificial hand, which in the sequel era is much more robot than it was in Return of the Jedi. I find myself wondering if it's the same hand and all the fake flesh has been damaged or worn away, or if he did another replacement at some point and didn't have access to the fancier tech. It definitely feels more thematically resonant to me if it's the same hand, worn away with age and cares, though. Anyway, because of the ableist Star Wars moral schema concerning bodily integrity, see episode 6 of this podcast, the fact that Luke's artificial hand is so prominent in the shot suggests that what we're about to get here is not Luke's best self. And sure enough, he's about to disappoint the heck out of this young fan who has gone through some stuff to be standing in front of him. But it seems like there's some hope, maybe. Because when Luke first met Yoda, the Jedi Master in that situation was also kind of a difficult imp clown. And Mark Hamill's performance tossing the saber is not a million miles from that version of Yoda. This expectation gets subverted almost immediately, however, when Luke goes off to be a grump in a shack by himself. Ray's response here is to invoke other names and individuals. Your sister Leia sent me. I'm with the Resistance. Chewbacca, please open up this grump shack for me. Ray still can't really see herself as important. She's but a messenger to others, a role she jumps into again by translating Chewie's language for Luke, without any indication I can see that Luke needs translation for one of his oldest friends. Note that Luke now understands R2 perfectly well when he explicitly didn't in Empire. But all this invocation of others can't get Luke interested in Ray, presumably because he already knows all these people and things. He only starts showing interest when Ray can feel the importance of the Jedi Library Tree. Side note, I love that the Jedi house their most important artifacts inside a living thing. Ooh, nature. That's when he starts asking who Rey is and why she specifically was sent to him. I submit that Luke, like so many of us in the audience, has absorbed the lesson from the Skywalker saga that only special people can be Jedi. Now to be clear, yes, you have to be Force-sensitive, and not everyone is. But fandom has gotten weirdly obsessed with the idea of lineage in an order made up almost entirely of celibate monks. Put another way, almost every Jedi in history was presumably born to non-Jedi parents. 
They don't have lineages. And that's where this movie will explicitly tell us that Ray's parents were nobody important, and it will show us that an impoverished stable boy who uses the Force to grab his broom. Yes, you have to be special to be a Jedi, but anyone might be special, and that's important. This is a good time to talk a bit about what The Last Jedi tells us about the Force in general. First of all, I think this movie has the most detail we've ever gotten on it, at least in the films. As Ray realizes, the Force is a series of opposites, and the space between them. It is light and dark, life and death, warmth and cold, Democrat and Republican, Coke and Pepsi. Um, Snoke tells us that as Kylo Ren grew in power, it was inevitable that his equal in the light would rise up, though I'm fascinated that this theory assumed Luke would be Kylo's opposite and not Snoke's, suggesting that Snoke considers himself above or beyond the balance. Luke also implies that the Darkseid cave is a result of this balance, and we can retroactively assume that the cave on Dagobah is a result of Yoda's presence. I would love to learn more about how this kind of thing happens. Something else that this movie suggests is a shift in how we should think about Force training. For many years, the expanded universe seemed to follow what I think of as the D&D model of the Force, which was no doubt reinforced by decades of tabletop and video games based on Star Wars. You earn experience points, either by formal instruction or practice in the field, and then you spend those experience points on new and better Force powers. This generally worked for the audience and expanded universe creators, presumably because it makes for a satisfying gameplay loop. It also basically matched what we saw in the original trilogy, where Luke receives formal instruction from Ben and Yoda and clearly expands his powers over the course of the three movies. Recent developments in the Disney-era canon, however, suggest that this model is inadequate for how the story group is currently thinking about the Force. We've had lots of whinging from a certain type of fan that Rey's abilities make no sense because she doesn't receive enough or any formal instruction, but that's clearly a choice the creative teams are making, and it's a choice backed up by recent developments on The Mandalorian, where, spoiler for the end of Episode 2, even a pre-verbal being, who one assumes has never had any kind of formal instruction because they seemingly have no language skills yet, can use the Force to a pretty impressive degree. So it makes sense that Yoda's a bit cavalier about the Jedi Library, and when he says it contained nothing that the girl Ray does not already possess, it's probably more accurate to think of this figuratively, as you pretty much have to until you know about the books being on board the Falcon. I kind of wish she hadn't stolen the books to drive this metaphor home a little cleaner, but it makes perfect sense as a character beat. The one guy that she might learn Jedi skills from is unwilling, so Ray the Scavenger will grab whatever isn't bolted down in order to advance her goals. But honestly, something else this movie reinforces is that the Jedi Order wasn't great. I went over the shortcomings of the Jedi in the prequel episodes, but Luke's repudiation of them is the first time we've seen one of our heroes vomit the Kool-Aid back up and unjoin the cult. Now to be clear, the Jedi were obviously successful in some arenas, specifically the arena of transforming stolen babies into non-stoppable battle wizards. But it's a powerful indictment of their code that Luke says when talking about Rey's attraction to the cave, it offered you something you needed and you didn't even try to stop yourself. The phrasing here pulled my ear immediately, something you needed. But obviously the good and correct thing would be to stop yourself from taking the thing you need, or at least try to do so. That's just super messed up, and apparently exactly what the Jedi Code would have you do. And there's a tragedy here as well, in that even though Luke has partially gotten over his Jedi idolatry, he still internalized this lesson of self-denial. And he still feels guilty enough to lie about a moment of random emotional impulse when he thought about killing Ben Solo. To be fair, this was an impulse that had big consequences, but at its heart, it was an intrusive thought like the mild urge to drive off a bridge or something, of the sort tons of people have all the time. They're weird and disturbing, but not a moral failure on anyone's part. Certainly not worth lying about. Unless you've been indoctrinated by space monks to believe that emotions and attachment are intrinsically dangerous and must be ruthlessly suppressed at all times. To his credit, Luke really wants to shake off the influence of the Jedi Order, which is why he tries to destroy the library tree. Luke is looking for a big dramatic gesture to finally end his abusive relationship with the Jedi Order, so he's going to burn the letters they wrote him, but he can't quite do it. Now, if you've listened to this show at all, you know that I have a habit of phrasing things in a playful, silly way, but I'm actually kind of serious about Luke and the Jedi Order having an abusive relationship. What else would you call it when a person or entity tells you not to have feelings, not to get involved with anyone else, 
deny your own needs, and keep doing all of this forever, long past my own death? I mean, you could also call it a cult, but there's a lot of overlap in this concept. Thankfully, Ray, R2-D2, and Ghost Yoda all help give Luke the little pushes he needs along the road to recovery. Ray reminds him about the legacy of his greatest triumph, saving Darth Vader. Luke has been seeing himself as a net negative on the galaxy, but she helps remind him of the time he saved everyone. R2 replays Leia's original message to Obi-Wan, to remind Luke who, who he fights for, and that she's still fighting for everyone. Finally, Yoda gives him the last lesson that failure is the greatest teacher, which carries the implicit message that failure isn't the end, it's another step on the way. And as for the Jedi Order, Luke tells us that theirs was a legacy of failure, but that means they can also benefit from Yoda's lesson, and the galaxy needs them to. Snoke tells us that as long as the Jedi live, hope lives in the galaxy, which is why he wants them eradicated. It's also why Luke's final speech about he won't be the last Jedi is legitimately hopeful, despite how much we've learned about the shortcomings of the Jedi. And we know Luke's final showdown with the First Order does inspire hope, because we see the children talking about it at the end in awed voices. Also, I'm not going to say that Luke's sacrifice is Christ-like necessarily, but he was a dude who was ultimately a product of a virgin birth and led 12 students, one of whom betrayed him. What I'm saying is he's not not grumpy space Jesus. And Luke's lousy self-image aside, it's plain that Rey still thinks of him as an unattainable ideal. Notice that on their way to the first lesson he's going to give her, we cut directly to him already most of the way up the mountain she needs to climb, which is only the first of several times we're going to see him standing at a much higher elevation than her, not just the pedestal I talked about Finn putting her on in the last movie. But let's talk more about Rey herself. As I mentioned at the beginning, The Last Jedi's M.O. is to develop our main trio by bouncing each of them off a pair of other characters. But there are a few moments in Rey's story that are strictly about her. We see her shortly after she arrives on Luke's island, rising early to practice with her staff. She's obviously done this lots of times before, showing superb control, and I get the impression this is just her daily habit, the way some people work out first thing in the morning. It's noteworthy that this kind of self-directed practice is, I believe, unique in the film franchise. Heroes like Luke and Han and Anakin are just naturally gifted at what they do, and if we see them in any kind of improvement regime, it's with a mentor figure training them. True to the real world, Rey just has to work harder to get the recognition that men are apparently owed. But after showing us that she has the kind of control with her staff that lets her stop a blow within a centimeter of her stone target, Rey pulls out the lightsaber and finds herself getting carried away enough to cut the rock in half. This seems to me of a piece with what Luke thinks of as her recklessness, her tendency to follow her instincts, toward the cave or whatever else. I talked about Rey in the cave in earlier episodes, notably Seven, but there are some other aspects of it that I noticed this time around that I wanted to mention. First, it seems important to me that she doesn't actually mean to enter. She's poking gingerly around the edges when she slips in. Again, Rey doesn't have the iron discipline of traditional Jedi, which has benefits and drawbacks, and this moment symbolically reinforces the idea that this is happening because of her lack of self-control. She falls into a small pool of water, which is generally film language for the unconscious mind, and that tracks pretty well with what's about to happen. Curiously, the camera is at a Dutch angle on the fall itself, so she appears to be falling diagonally downward. I think this is to give this new environment a dreamlike quality. During her exploration of the cave, we hear voiceover from Ray describing her experience. At first, this just seems like maybe internal monologue to explain the dream experience to us, but we find out instead that this is her telling the story to Kylo afterwards. While this is a relatively common device in films generally, I think it's a first for Star Wars movies, so it stands out to me. My guess about what's going on here is that the cave represents a transformational moment in Rey's quest for identity. She's been told, again, to stop looking for her parents, but she's still not quite ready to be entirely on her own. So her sense of self is bleeding a bit into her weird force time calls with Kylo. Right after this, she'll make one final attempt to convince Luke to leave with her, and when he refuses, she'll describe Kylo Ren as our last hope. Rey is still defining herself as the person who needs to go get the actual hero, but shifting her focus to redeeming Ben Solo actually seems like a slightly positive step to me because the thing that Luke Skywalker, legend, is known for is redeeming Anakin. If she was still just trying to recruit Luke, that's clearly a lesser role than Luke would play. But if she can save Ben, that's heroic in its own right. Though she still phrases it as, he's our last hope. Look, it's the middle chapter, we have to save some character development for the end. 
Which brings us at long last to Kylo Ren. Kylo begins the movie in a pretty bad spot. He just murdered his father, which doesn't seem to have helped as much as he expected it to. I also love that Snoke gives us a perfect explanation for how Rey beat him when the first time she'd ever used a lightsaber. He was gutted after killing Han, and he likely couldn't tap into the dark or the light very well. The Supreme Leader also makes textual what we were seeing in the previous movie, that Kylo Ren isn't really a monster, just as Snoke puts it, a child in a mask. And once his fakery is put in such stark terms, Kylo can't help but throw another massive tantrum, utterly shattering his mask in the process. We see the broken remains of the mask with a bit of dramatic irony, as Rey tells us that there's no light left in Kylo Ren. She can't know this yet, but the broken mask is our proof that he's still a quivering mass of internal conflict held together with literal stitches. We see a droid closing the wound Rey gave him last movie. And then the Force time calls start happening. I love these as a narrative device, because they give us a reason these characters can interact as peers without having to fight. It's revealing that Rey's first reaction is to vent all her anger and try to shoot Kylo, while his is to try to understand what's going on as an academic matter. Remember that he's received all the formal instruction that it's possible in this era, from the two greatest Force users currently living, while she's barely held a lightsaber at this point. Yet they're basically evenly matched. There is definitely power in Rey's intuitive relationship to the Force. But as their relationship forms and deepens, we start to see the abusive dynamic that Kylo has learned from Snoke. The Supreme Leader is cruel to him, so he, seeing himself as the teacher in his and Rey's relationship, is cruel to her. You don't have a place in this story. You're nothing. But not to me. It is straight-up abuser language, preying on Rey's exact vulnerability, her sense of self-worth. But she is making progress by this point. In her defiant speech to Snoke, Rey tells him, You underestimate Skywalker, and Ben Solo, and me. Yes, it's an afterthought, but at least it's there. The mistake that Rey and Snoke both make, however, is seeing Kylo Ren nay Ben Solo as a binary. The only outcomes either of them can imagine are eternal subservience to Snoke and the dark side, or becoming a resistance champion of the light, and both a surprise when he murders Snoke as the quick path to promotion instead. But for a few glorious minutes, we see the two on the same side, working together like good romantic interests against Snoke's guards in one of my favorite fight scenes in Star Wars, which ends with them arm-wrestling through the force over Rey's lightsaber. Of course, what they're really wrestling over is the Skywalker legacy, represented by this sword that was wielded by two Skywalkers already. Which of them counts as the true heir to that legacy? Who gets to decide what the Skywalkers mean? This movie leaves the question unanswered, as the two are evenly matched and wind up shearing the thing in half by their opposed wills, before getting interrupted by a package from Vice Admiral Holdo's hyperspace delivery service. So after Rey has left the Supremacy and Kylo has assumed command of the First Order, and once again demonstrated his considerable talent for waking up just before someone tries to murder him, we arrive on Crate, and I'm going to be honest, I don't have a lot of notes about this section of the movie because I have trouble looking away from it every time I watch. I do know that when the big showdown is over and the few remaining Resistance personnel are aboard the Falcon, Rey closes the door on him and their connection, just before the projection of Han's dice fades away. Kylo started this movie alone in the universe, and ends it even more so, without even access to the false comfort of his abusive mentor. There are a few interesting intertextual points to look at in The Last Jedi. One of the subtler ones is Kylo's line about let the past die, kill it if you have to. It's the only way to become what you are meant to be. Which is conceptually an echo, albeit a more violent one, of Maz's line in The Force Awakens, also to Rey, that the belonging you seek is not behind you, it is ahead. Both lines stress the importance of leaving behind the past in order to grow, but Kylo's version is inherently narcissistic and self-involved, the dark side way, where Maz's stresses connection to others and implicitly empathy, the light side way. More obviously, the scene in Snoke's throne room is kind of a remix of the climaxes of both Empire and Jedi, with one light side hero being tempted and threatened by a dark counterpart and his omnipotent master, only to have the counterpart kill the master and also a revelation about parentage and an offer to join the dark side to rule the galaxy. Rey's cave scene, while obviously inspired by Luke's cave experience on Dagobah, seems most notable for how different it is from its source. Luke, idiot adventurer, can't bear the thought of entering a strange place without his weapons, and is immediately beset by a vision of terrible violence that turns out to be himself. 
Ray enters her cave unclear on who she is, and is eventually just shown a mirror. Both see themselves, but Ray is shown the futility of looking behind her, while Luke is shown the danger of his aggressive impulses. The last big intertextual bit I wanted to talk about was to compare the Battle of Crait to the Battle of Hoth from The Empire Strikes Back, because there's some really sly opposites going on here. Obviously, both battles occur in a largely white backdrop, and there are small good guy speeders and giant bad guy walkers. The abandoned rebel base on Crait uses a bunch of the same consoles and equipment that the rebel base on Hoth did as well. But consider that Hoth is at the beginning of Edsamoe while Crait is at the end. Crait's surface is covered in salt, which is often used to melt snow, which is what Hoth is covered with. Also, the good guys are defending the left side of the screen on Hoth and the right side on Crait. It's yet another instance of Ryan Johnson both using and inverting the mythology of the franchise. Oh, and on Crate, our pilots aren't all white men. Yay progress. Okay, it's time to talk about my favorite part, and it's just an embarrassment of riches. I spent some time thinking about this, even though I knew immediately what the answer was going to be, because I wanted to be sure. I thought about Luke dusting off his shoulder after the First Order blows up the piece of the planet he's standing on. I thought about Finn saying, Oh, they hate that ship! and Rose's perfect swagger after she stuns Finn by the escape pods. I thought about Ray casting about for what to have Chewie tell Finn, and then agreeing that his incomprehensible growling suggestion is perfect, or 3PO finishing his stupid statistic about the odds while Poe furiously tries to shush him. I love that this movie makes a reference to hardware wars, of all fucking things, in the First Order laundry room, and I'm just hypnotized by DJ every time he's on screen. But none of those are my favorite part. My favorite isn't even the most beautiful shot in the franchise, when Vice Admiral Holdo lights up the First Order's flagship and fleet like an apocalyptic Christmas tree. No, my favorite part of this stunning movie is the epilogue, when we see that Luke's final act of legendary heroism has inspired another generation with wonder and awe of what they could be someday themselves. Put another way, it's the part where the kids play with the toys. Obviously, this moment is aimed specifically at people like me, who include playing with Star Wars toys as some of their earliest and dearest memories. But holy shit did it work on me. It worked so well that the first two times I saw this movie, I didn't see Broom Boy telekinesing his broom because I was too busy crying. Well done, Ryan Johnson, well done. The other thing about this scene that doesn't get talked about enough is its relationship to the tropes version of the rest of the movie. As I've said, I think part of the negative response to this movie is based on the fact that it willfully tricks you multiple times. And if you're just looking for another Star Wars, I can see how you might get resentful if you feel like the movie is making fun of you. But what this scene does, at least for me, is tell us emphatically and in no uncertain terms that Star Wars matters. These kids are stand-ins for all of us who grew up with it, excitedly telling the story, playing with the toys, and even looking to the horizon while holding a broom like a lightsaber. And the film does not judge them for any of this. That broom boy could be an actual Jedi someday. To paraphrase Yoda, he already has everything he needs. But one of the things he needs is that sense of wonder and adventure. And that comes from his participation in the story of Star Wars. It matters. And those are my thoughts about metaphors in The Last Jedi. But I'd love to hear what I missed. Talk to me on Twitter at rhyrit. Or if you're a Chipperish patron, you can chat with me and the other Chipperish hosts on our Discord room. If you're not a Chipperish patron, you can rectify that at patreon.com slash chipperish. Thanks for listening, and metaphors be with you. Mm-hmm.